Hi, folks. Terry Harris here. What if you woke up one day and said, I'm going to build an alternative to the way we do banking and finance in Canada? On part two of our Market Hunt FinTech series, we sit down with Mohamed Sawaf, co-founder of Menzil. Stay tuned. Entrepreneurship's hard. You need to have support there. We fundamentally have to learn how to live our lives differently. We can't keep going the way we have. Congratulations, because that's a pretty brilliant path down the mountain. Actually, we were wrong. That's an incredible market. So I fall in love easily. True. We're coming up with some pretty interesting ideas. We solved it. (laughs) Solved everything. (laughs) We solved it all. And now a message from our sponsor, IE Knowledge Hub. IE Knowledge Hub is a website dedicated to promoting learning and exchanges on international entrepreneurship. Watch video case studies, listen to podcasts, and much more. If you are an education professional looking for course content, an academic researcher seeking research material, or someone interested in business innovation, check out IE Knowledge Hub. IE Knowledge Hub focuses on innovation ecosystems and firms who commercialize their technologies in international markets. Let's listen in to a video case study featuring Invest Ottawa. A startup is an experiment. It's an experiment that has a thesis that they're trying to figure out something because as a startup, you don't have a product, you don't have money, you don't have customers, you don't have channel, and you don't have employees, right? So typically it's a couple of founders testing out an idea and seeing, okay, does this work? That's Kevin Carroll from Invest Ottawa. Invest Ottawa is an economic development corporation. Their mission is to help foster entrepreneurship in the Ottawa capital region, bring more jobs to the area, and attract foreign direct investment. The case explores some of the organization's accelerator programs, helping startups scale rapidly to become full-fledged companies. So the program is a combination of workshops that give the entrepreneurs all the essential knowledge and skills they need at those early stages in their business and we then pair that with one-on-one mentorship. It's really helpful to have uh, a mentor or a guide that can help them walk through and flag the real things that they should be aware of, give them essential knowledge, help them acquire the skills, make introductions, and just guide them through the process of getting that business off the ground. That's Elise Saragulli speaking about one of Invest Ottawa's accelerator programs. The organization is a big believer in group learning and networking effects to help foster a healthy entrepreneurial ecosystem. They're looking for that type of support and uh, they're looking to be introduced into the local ecosystem. You know, who's out there that can help them, be it service providers, investors, or even just meeting other people like themselves. Find out more how Invest Ottawa fosters an entrepreneurial ecosystem at the end of the show. You can also check out the Invest Ottawa video case study by visiting ie-knowledgehub.ca. Inclusive banking is the concept of helping reach underserved communities and various social and economic classes who are traditionally overlooked by mainstream banks. In 2017, there were 1.7 billion people who didn't have a bank account. Not having a bank account has a tremendous impact on a person's ability to invest in their health, their education, and to build wealth. With the advent of new blockchain technologies, it is now very fast and very secure to open a bank account. 
But the issue still remains that too many are being excluded from reaping the benefits of financial instruments to help build their lives. Inclusive banking can also mean providing services for religious and ethnic groups, or to serve groups that hold certain values, such as being socially responsible when investing your money. The Muslim community in Canada has recently been offered an alternative to regular banking, credit, and lending services. Globally, Muslim financial services have emerged into a multi-trillion dollar sector, accelerating their presence even more rapidly over the pandemic with double-digit growth. But in Canada, they didn't exist before 2020. The sector is as old as Islam. It's been around for 1,400 years. In the 1960s, a revival took place in Egypt. There, the first government-sponsored banking institution in the modern era was born. The differences were subtle, but important. Things such as riba, narrowly interpreted as interest, were banned. Transactions had to be transparent, and unlike the fiat system, had to be backed by tangible assets. Outside of Muslim countries, the United Kingdom holds the title for the most advanced regulatory district to integrate Islamic finance into their system. Rather than regulate Islamic financial products with separate legislation, the UK's approach is to adapt pre-existing legislation and regulations governing conventional financial instruments to cater for the structures commonly used in Islamic finance. This has led to robust growth in the sector. That's good news for UK Muslims, a significant group that reached 5% of the overall population in 2020. In this episode, we speak with Canada's first Islamic fintech company, Menzil. Founded in 2017 by Mohamed Sawaf and Sam Halako, the company aims to service Canada's 1.6 million Muslims, offering halal financial services for home mortgages and investments. The young startup has already received international attention winning the World Islamic Fintech Awards for Most Promising Startup and Best Alternative Finance Fintech Provider. I spoke to Sawaf in December 2020. Let's listen in to the conversation. The purpose of Menzel really is to close a gap that we saw when it came to developing the Islamic finance market here in Canada with respect to actually creating bona fide products and solutions that cater towards the Muslim community here specifically. Menzil exists to promote an inclusive financial system that can be representative of the values and belief systems of its target market. We exist not only to fulfill a gap or a need, because if you look at Canadian Muslims from a demographic statistical piece, you know, there are 1.6 million Muslims across Canada. It's uh, growing to 2.6 over the next 10 years, which not only makes it the fastest growing, but the second largest religious base after Catholicism. But then you look at the, the wealth that they've created and it's completely lopsided. And that's not because of a balance sheet perspective, because we have double the national average when it comes to post-secondary education, as well as six-figure household incomes. And so it's really, truly a lack of product. Uh, and so when you, when you take a look at that and you take a look at, well, why we have the lowest participations of homeownership and capital markets. It's not because of balance sheets. It's because of lack of product. So we had to fulfill that gap of creating products that are that are available uh, to this group 
um, from a from a religious principles perspective. And so, you know, that's our mission with respect to financial inclusion, with respect to accessibility, and creating that social impact that needs to be created because this is a a strong community that is a, a very giving or charitable community as well. The social impact piece, like I don't know if you guys know, but like in the religion of of Islam, there's uh, you know you're obligated to give away two and a half percent of your wealth on an annual basis, two and a half percent, right? So this is what we call equivalent to alms giving, I think, in in other religions, right? And so you know if you think about you know I was born here, you know I'm 35 years old, and if Islamic finance uh, was available 35 years ago. And, you know, a lot of people adopted it. What, what could have been the generational wealth that could have been created? And what is then the two and a half percent of that that could then be disseminated into society to alleviate hunger, to alleviate poverty, to uh, alleviate uh, homelessness, right? It's, it's crazy. The story of Menzil is one of struggle and perseverance. Theirs was a journey Sawaf was determined to succeed in. Their main challenge was that they had to find a common ground between the Canadian financial regulatory framework and the halal value-based financial system. Once Sawaf had made up his mind that something needed to be done to address the lack of product in his target market, he embarked on a two-year R&D period in 2017. Sawaf retained both Bay Street lawyers in Toronto as well as international Sharia advisors, to set up Menzil to meet the legal standards and principles from both entities. But the story of Menzil doesn't start in 2017. It began 10 years earlier. When I graduated from my undergrad in 2007 and ended up kind of in the financial services industry, um, I quickly, uh, you know, kept hitting this wall within, you know, community members that I was speaking to that I was trying to attract to kind of uh, the banking platforms that I was working for. Uh, and they were all shutting me out just because there was no available products. Uh, and so I took that feedback and I tried to, you know, work with the executive teams and said, hey, I think there's an opportunity here if we could only develop a product. And, I, and that's kind of where um, all of the communication just stopped because, you know, what does that product look like? How do you even make it work? What, like, where do you even start? Uh, and so, you know, as I started to build my career um, and kept hitting that wall and that wall kept growing uh, taller and taller, in 2014, I embarked on my MBA uh, as kind of just, you know, getting that foundational uh, academic learnings in corporate finance. But I ended up actually meeting a professor by the name of uh, Walid Hijazi, who's uh, an economics professor here out of uh, the Rotman School. And he was actually teaching uh, a graduate level course on Islamic finance. And I expressed my interest to him and he said, you know, why don't you become my TA? And then we ended up actually co-teaching that course over, you know, five or six years. Um, And that's really where I started to better understand the foundations of Islamic finance, how to create products, how to structure them, but also how to localize them within our current regulatory framework. Because, you know, Canada hasn't changed, you know, their their banking laws or their regulatory frameworks, uh, you know, foundationally to accommodate Islamic finance, unlike the UK, which is kind of the, the, the best Western example when it comes to, you know, seeing conventional and Islamic banking work uh, in parallel. 
And so, you know, that MBA then led me to uh, corporate governance and finance master's uh, degree, and then now into my Islamic finance doctoral uh, degree. And um, in 2017, I basically made the made the decision to leave corporate. Um, I ended up at another fintech that I wasn't a founder of. But that's really where all of my worlds converged and, and collided. It was just like, here's a platform that's attracting users digitally, you know, providing that accessibility across Canada. And they're just using products um, that were, you know, other institutions' products on the back end. And I was like, well, that's interesting. So, you know, the front end piece, I was like, okay, well, that's cool. Because what that solved for me as a traditional banker, I was like, well, I don't need millions and millions of dollars to open up a bank in Canada. Well, I, and not by like in terms of a banking license, but I can do, you know, financial services under different licenses um, that could appeal to this market. But I also didn't have any other institution that actually created the product. So I said, well, I have to not only develop, you know, the front end to allow these people to access these products, but I also have to create the product myself. Uh, and so we went into R&D mode uh, between 2017 and 2019. And we put a legal team together. We put an audit team together. We put a Sharia advisory team together. And we basically said, let's solve this problem, right? Let's find a product that works within the confines of the Canadian regulatory framework you know, tax laws and, you know, all the other laws that, that, that need to be looked at, but is also compliant from the religious principles uh, perspective. And, you know, 24 months later, we were able to do that. And, you know, from there, you know, we were able to raise money, get the products into the market and actually have real clients, real users and real revenue. Menzil's Halal Financial Certifications are overseen by the Bahrain-based Accounting and Auditing Organization for Islamic Financial Institutions. So think about that for a second. You've got a startup attempting to put together financial services which comply with Canadian financial regulations, while at the same time meeting an international body's standards to certify the validity of your products. Sawaf so elaborates on some of the main principles that distinguish their products as halal. The main principles of, of Islamic finance, number one is clear and transparent contracts, right? You know, on both sides, right? So me as a consumer or, my, you know, um, if the person on the other side is a financier, you know, what are we and what kind of agreement are, are we entering into and what are all the clauses, right? Like I need to understand them and I can't be taken advantage of, right? Number two asset-backed or asset-based transactions, right? We live in an economy, not just in Canada, but globally, under what we call fiat money, right? So money means nothing. And in Islam, it also means nothing, right? Like there's no value on money. Like back in the day, even if I think if you went back to the Roman empires or the Byzantine empires or the Ottoman empires, you know, coins were backed behind commodities like you had gold coins you had silver coins you had bronze coins right they were worth something today it's it's printed on paper or plastic and so anytime we enter into a transaction there's got to be some sort of asset behind it and you know the the, the telling thing on this is uh, as an academic uh, i you know uh, as i mentioned I've looked at a bunch of studies uh, that came about post-2008. And we all know that the 2007-2008 financial crisis was really embedded upon, you know, borrowing, right, high leverage type situations. And so what they did was, is they compared 
you know, halal banks or to non-halal banks and how they fared. And because halal banks had most of their products under asset, like behind, like backed by assets, they weathered the storm, right? They didn't, their, their risk profile, right? You know, if you looked at returns on a risk adjusted basis, they outperformed the non-halal banks, right? So, you know, if we, if we look at it from that perspective, everyone would be like, well, why don't, why doesn't everybody do it? Right. It just, it's just safer for everybody. It's better for the planet. So, you know, transparent contracts, um, you know, asset backed or asset based uh, transactions. Um, and then the third piece is not getting involved in businesses uh, that are deemed, let's say harmful to society. Okay. So what are these businesses? Right. So, you know, uh, alcohol, uh, weapons or defense, uh, tobacco, um, you know, uh, the, the other entertainment industry, like gambling, pornography. These are all things that we stay away from when it comes to investing in, in, in certain businesses or creating these types of businesses, right? So overall, you know, and, and uh, you know, when you talk to investment guys, they'll be like, oh yeah, those are just, you know, generally called the sin stocks. But if you look at, you know, if you look at SRI itself, like social responsible investing, they filter out those companies, generally speaking. Absolutely. Right. So, yeah. Right. So, yeah. so is, does that make it, you know, oh, uh, halal? Well, by default. Yeah. Right. But not but not by design. Right. So, right. <laughs> so there's there's lots of these products or instruments that are available to us today that by default comply with right? The religious principles of Islamic finance. Sawaf went on to compare the outcome of the services to the difference between halal or kosher foods and non-halal foods. On the outside, they look exactly the same. But behind the scenes, the procedure for preparing the food is done according to the principles and regulations of each religion. Halal banking, he argues, is no different. The end result looks exactly the same, right? But what, what, what is the difference between the two? It's the process. We have to treat everything humanely, especially when it comes to the table. Islamic finance is no different. If you look at the end result, a person was able to get a home and is now making a mortgage payment. But the process and the documentation that's in place to make that happen is what's, what makes it all, you know, let's say kosher or halal. When you look at the food industry today, like I'm sure like it, when I go to when I go to Montreal, like there is no shortage of Middle Eastern cuisine options. Right. You know, whether it be shawarmas or kuftas and kebabs and all this stuff. And you have people from all walks of life coming in. Right. Yep, certainly. A guy like me may care because, you know, they're using halal meat and other people may not care because they just like the way it tastes. Right. And they just love the culture. And I've had many conversations, like just even like just friends of mine who say, I actually prefer buying the halal or kosher meat because I know, right, I have clarity and transparency in the, in the, in the process, right? Yeah, that... And they're not religious at all, right? <laughs> but they just want healthy meat on the table, right? <laughs> all right, enough with the food analogies and back to Menzil's business model. We like to call ourselves kind of a, a B2C or D2C play, but we also have a B2B2C uh, play as well. And hopefully I, I can break it down So uh, for you. So number one, uh, we are a product manufacturer, right? So like I said, or I had mentioned to uh, earlier in this conversation, 
we don't get clients because of our digital platform. You know, the digital platform is the enabler. It's the accessibility, what makes it accessible. But people come to us because they know on the back end, we have a product that is in line with their belief system, right? So anytime we're launching a product, we have to actually, we don't even look at kind of the marketing strategy. We don't look at the, the UI, the UX, the design. We're like, well, what is the legal structure of this product first, right? So let's, 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 that's, and that's a conversation between lawyers and advisors. So we start there. We then, you know, make a product that complies on both sides, right? So, which is the Canadian legal system, as well as the, you know, the religious uh, legal system. And then we start to build, right, everything around that. Uh, and so for our mortgage solution, right, this is where we have end-to-end -end control, right? So we are the source of funding. And we are also the ones, um, you know, originating, underwriting and providing those financing agreements to the public. Right. Uh, and so we have a digital platform that allows people to apply directly. They will then get underwritten um, and then they will uh, get, uh, let's say, funded and then serviced. Right. So we will, you know, take their payments on a monthly basis. Um, we have the ability to change those payments. And that was actually one of the, the gaps that we saw when we were building this mortgage piece of our business was, you know, there, there isn't one all-encompassing third-party like, like digital platform or tech piece that we could just bring on and it'll fulfill all this underwriting origination and servicing. So it was actually three or four platforms that we had to stitch together and we were like, this is just, you know, um, not efficient, right? And so that was one piece that we focused on creating ourselves. It's end-to-end. -end. We have full control of it. And it's 100% scalable. So we are so proud of that product that we've created from a tech piece. Um, yeah, on the investment side, so how do people, how do we fulfill kind of this, uh, you know, this wait list, right, that we have of, of people that are inundating us that want a mortgage. So, like I said, we attract our own capital. And again, it ended up being a two-in-one solution because if you look at kind of the Muslim Canadians and what was accessible or available to them from a financial uh, investment perspective, they had access to equity-based products, but they never had access to fixed income-based products. And so we said, well, why don't, and again, my background, I've dealt with many mortgage funds. I was like, well, why don't we just create a mortgage fund that these same group can invest in, but then that capital gets redirected towards, you know, this, you know, this uh, same community and it ends up being a peer to peer model. And, and, and so uh, Wealth Bar, form, well, CI Direct, which is now formerly Wealth Bar last year uh, engaged with us and said, hey, you know, we want to create a diversified halal offering on our platform. Do you guys have a fixed income piece? And we're like, absolutely. And so, um, you know, once once we establish that relationship, and that's the B to B to C piece, right? Because people come to our platform, we then transition them on to the CI Direct platform because they're a robo. They do their thing best, which is set up accounts, make it seamless. The UI UX is amazing. And then what ends up happening is they invest in the Menzel portfolios, which is one of four diversified options, right? And, and so our strategy has always been, how can we get to market as fast as possible to create the space? Because there's a lot of, um, there's a perception and there's an aura of, well, is there really demand for what you guys are doing, right? 
And so instead of creating our own robo, we partnered with a, another robo that's national. You know, now it's CI Direct. They're backed by CI Financial, you know, largest non-bank asset manager in Canada. What better partnership to have in place? Then what happened over the summer was we got uh, a partnership established with Coho, which is another national fintech backed by Portage. Um, and, you know, they said, well, is there a, a play on our current offering to make it halal? And they have a prepaid visa credit card program. And we're like, yeah, absolutely. We can definitely do this. And this would be a great offering for our community because they don't like to take on uh, credit based instruments, right, that are, involve interest. So we're like, 100%, absolutely. So we then established a partnership again with them. And that, what, what do they have? They have a product, they have the back office, they have the infrastructure. We were basically there to attract, you know, and certify, right? That's our two kind of main uh, pieces when it comes to B2B2C is we will certify the product to ensure that it complies. But then we will also uh, attract the demographic that they're not able to because of the sensitivities towards culture or religion or any of those pieces that they just don't understand. Congratulations, because that's a pretty brilliant path down the mountain. Did you see this when you started this, uh, Mohammed, or was this kind of just app? No, I, not like if you came to me in 2019, like May 2000, when we closed our first round of financing, and you told me, oh, like, you know, within a year, you're going to have partnerships with Coho and CI Financial. I'd be like, I'm calling your bluff. Like, how how does that even happen, right? At, and that wasn't our path. Our whole path was we're just going to do it ourselves and we're going to figure this out. We're going to vertically integrate everything. And, you know, lo and behold, the, the good thing is, is these institutions understand that there's an opportunity and they've realized that they can't do it themselves. So they partner up with us to say, well, we'll provide the back office for you. You're the front facing and it's a win win. When you are a startup, it's a great thing to be able to partner with a larger, more established player that can A, give you credibility, and B, access to their markets. Menzil is able to do so with two of Canada's largest non-banking financial institutions. I asked Sawaf how one would apply for a mortgage with Menzil. How exactly is it different from applying for a mortgage with any other financial institution? Great question. So... Um, you know, from a process perspective, I think there, uh, there's no difference in terms of, let's say, the steps, right? You know, you're going to apply. Uh, it, it, we, th we think we've provided a more convenient way to do that just because it's completely digital. Uh, and so, you know, you don't really have to walk into, you know, a retail uh, branch and sit down with somebody to collect your information. You can just do this from the comfort of your own home. So you'll, you'll submit all of your financial information required. Our underwriting is no different than the banks, right? We use the same guidelines, um, which are called B20 guidelines, even though we're not obligated to because we're not a Schedule 1 bank. But we, we do that just to keep the, the playing field level, right? Uh, and with, especially with respect to any institutions that we partner with or that may be looking towards a capital injection in our fund, we can come back to them and say and confidently be like, this is the same underwriting process that you guys have. So there's no difference in the underwriting. Um, and then once you get a pre-approval from us, 
uh, it's really no different in terms of how you want to go about and shop for your house, right? So you're going to go shop for your house and you're going to say, I like this one. But what happens at that point is what makes, uh, you know, the, the difference between uh, conventional financing versus, you know, our financing. You know, the bank would basically come on closing and say, you know, you've been pre-approved for whatever, a $500,000 mortgage. We're going to send the money to the bank and then you're just going to owe us X amount of uh, interest over this period of time and then come back to us in five years and we're going to renew you. Right. That's the that's the traditional way. And just an FYI, 98 percent of mortgages in Canada are on a five year fixed closed uh, rate. So and and this is going to be very important because this is how our products differentiate um, uh, from that respect. So uh, under the Menzel system, you would you know enter into a purchase and sale agreement with, um, you know, your the, the property seller. And then you have two ways of engaging with us. Either we can buy the property on your behalf and resell it back to you, or we come in as a partner on that property with the amount of financing that we're bringing to the table, right? So if you came and said, well, I just want you to buy it and resell it, well, that's good. Think of it as like a 25-year fixed rate or up to 25-year fixed rate because what's going to happen is we're going to buy this property for 500000 and then we're going to put an implicit underlying financing rate and we're going to make some calculation. We'd come back to you and say, well, if you were to make these payments over a 25 year period, your total cost would be, let's say, $750,000, right? So the profit margin there is 250 over a 25 year period, right? So we would, then just, we would just come back to you and say, well, give us a monthly payment of $2,500 a month for 300 months, 300 times 2,500 is 750,000, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, that's, and that just acts like a 25 year fixed rate, which again, is not available in Canada. Under this model, which is the Morabaha or credit sale model, we have sold that property back to them. And this all this happens on the same day of closing, right? So it's a buy and sell, right? So you still end up having full title of the property. It's in your ownership. You have it. We have a standard mortgage agreement and a collateral charge, right? So we have a lien on the property, just like the banks would. So all of these things, again, remember when I talked to you, like at the end of the day, it, there's no difference when you look at the two. Yeah, right? yeah. It, it's just that because why do we have to buy the asset and then sell it back to you? to satisfy that element of being an asset-backed or asset-based transaction. There you go. There I can't you go. sell, I can't give you money and ask for more money in return. Under what premise, right? But if I have something that I own and you're willing to buy it from me for a certain price, well, that allows us to satisfy this tenant of the transaction. Minzel also offers the opportunity to invest in what Sawaf calls a mortgage fund. Our pool of money basically ends up just getting dividends or distributions from the cash flows of those mortgage payments. We don't participate in the increased value of the property, right? So, so if you were to invest, you know, let's say, you know, ten thousand dollars into the mortgage fund, and you can do that through your RSPs, TFSAs, RSPs, like any type of account under the sun is available. Uh, through our partnership at CI Direct to be able to invest in this. And what will happen is on a monthly basis, you're just going to get a distribution or a dividend, right? Based on the profits that come through all of those mortgage payments. Exactly. And it's distributed equally uh, as a pool. 
So you as an investor are lowering your risk because you're not tied into one mortgage directly. You're tied into hundreds or if not thousands, right? And so the risk of that portfolio is super, super low with very, very stable cash flows. I look at our fund as very plain vanilla. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, 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 it's residential properties only, right? Like it's not even commercial and res it's residential only. These are real homes, not like development or pre-development. Like we won't um, finance anything without a real tangible asset on the property. You know, we, we ask for a minimum 20% down payment from our clients, right? So there's, there's a buffer there on the equity side, just in case, you know, uh, Canadian real estate market goes awry. Um, and, you know, we're charging or, there's, you know, we're generating a return on investment anywhere between 3 and 4% long term. And in a zero rate environment, which we're in now, where can you find that? We do get requests for all of these other types of, uh, you know, financing strategies, where it be construction or, you know, you renovation. Know, just yeah. renovation or land. Um, we, like I said, we're very plain vanilla. Uh, we, 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 we will expand once we start to saturate that piece. But, you know, to, to saturate, you know, the mortgage, the Islamic mortgage market in Canada is $150 billion. So when I come back on this podcast and you say, hey, Mohammed, you've done $150 billion, I'm like, okay, yeah, we're getting into construction now. We're doing all these other things. So because, you know, all of these loan types can be structured in a manner that complies uh, or, or can be halal, right? But it's just a matter of, you know, what is, what is, what is the biggest, uh, let's call it anchor, so to speak. And for us, it's always been kind of that retail uh, mortgage because everybody wants a home, everybody wants a car, right? Uh, and so, you know, if they have a home um, and they can participate in the Canadian dream of, you know, building wealth and equity through home ownership, everything else can be taken care of at that point. I asked Awaf about who were some of the global players who are participating in this halal financial ecosystem. So there's a company called Wahed Invest. Um, they're more on the like halal robo investment side. Um, and they have a global presence over 130 countries. Um, and they're one of our partners um, in the Menzel halal portfolios, right? So when you invest in the Menzel halal portfolios, you'll get kind of our mortgage fund, but then you'll also get the stock-based uh, fund or ETF, uh, which is provided through Wahid. Um, you know, if you go to the UK, right, where they have a very dominant uh, Islamic finance or halal finance industry or sector, because they've opened that up since 2003, they have five bona fide Islamic banks. They have 20 Islamic financial institutions. They have over 12 billion uh, pounds worth of assets in that marketplace. Um, so this is uh, a very great example that I always like to bring up because, you know, when you look at the commonalities between the UK and Canada, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, the legal infrastructure. So like we're both under common law jurisdictions, uh, you know, even Australia, right? Australia is now growing to be another epicenter of Islamic finance, which is great to see. And again, it's because of the precedents that the UK has made uh, under common law, right? And they've created, uh, you know, a sub regulator, regulator under the FCA that focuses on, you know, it's like an Islamic finance regulatory authority, right? Which is, you know, these are all things that aren't available in Canada yet, but where we're pushing and creating that industry uh, slowly over time. 
Um, you know, but if you go into Malaysia and the GCC, which is, you know, the Gulf country cooperation, um, you know, so the UAEs of the world, the Saudis of the world, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, that's where you're going to find a lot of these uh, Islamic banks. What you won't find, though, are these digital plays, right? They're, they're not there yet, right? So that's just starting to happen. Um, and, you know, this, this whole uh, digital experience and trying to attract clients and users um, with these underlying products. Um, so we're starting to see more and more of that landscape start to increase globally. Um, and it's very refreshing, actually, because, you know, if you came to me a, a couple of years ago, I would have told you I don't know anybody in the space. Uh, but now uh, I know many people and, and m most of them are outside of Canada. Unfortunately, that's fine because we're kind of like the only Islamic fintech right now. And I'm, I'm, and I'm hoping that there'll be more and more that come, uh, come to the table. But uh, yeah, like, you, you know, the U.S. Is, is, has a lot of up and coming uh, fintechs. Uh, the U.K. is like busting through the seams with, you know, the amount of fintech that's coming into play now, especially with their challenger bank status that you can get. Um, so, you know, you can easily get, uh, you know, a challenger bank or an e-money license in the U.K. within like three to six months. You know, it's crazy. And, and they're talking to me and they're like, oh, you know, it takes a bit of time through. I'm like. Three to six months. I'm like, I can't even get anything filed in three months here in Canada. You know, like. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. That's uh, well. It's amazing. Well, first of all, so there's a Commonwealth story, and uh, you know, I don't know how many countries are there, but it's more than a dozen countries that have that uh, legal regulatory framework, uh, and also the uh, innovation piece uh, and a user experience. You know, just driven again by consumer expectations, consumer demands to have those seamless transactions, to have that transparency to kind of almost gamify the uh, experience so that it makes it fun and makes it exciting and makes it something that you can track and follow and monitor and kind of take ownership over. Why is the user experience something uh, important for your, uh, for your organization to focus on? Oh, it's paramount, actually. Like, if you look at Canada, generally speaking, uh, when it comes to financial services, you know, we are just so brainwashed to be like, we have to go to the bank, we have to meet with somebody face to face in order to get these things done. And the banks have done a very good job over the last 150, 200 years of this, you know, of their establishments to instill kind of that mentality. And so what we're seeing now is this change of consumer behavior, this change of, well, wanting to do it from, you know, the, 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 the palm of my hand, right? I want to do it at the convenience of my home. And, and why can't, like, it, it's so, it, it's still alarming to see how many forums I go on to and they're like, it took me seven days to open up a bank account, right? Or it took me, you know, all of this back and forth between like verifying ID and like having to come in and do to just open up a simple bank account, right? And so that's where I think um, the opportunity lies is there is already this trend of consumer behaviorism, you know, for, 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 for good or for bad because like of, of instant gratification or instant satisfaction, like they just want it now, right? And, but in the financial services industry, we're so far behind. And, and actually I think the pandemic accelerated that uh, for us, because we've seen, you know, positive net inflows increase month over month. And, you know, it, it was a challenge for us to force people to say, you have to click this link to get started. You have to, you know, you know, you have to, you have to start here to do it. 
well, why can't you do it? Or we would, we would, you know, how many people randomly just walked into our office <laughs> and said, I want an appointment. Right. Yeah. So the pandemic yeah. with people, you know, the stay at home, uh, initiative, uh, you know, across Canada has actually forced people to be online, to get up to speed with, you know, uh, you know, consumerism online and even doing financial services online. And I think now there's just a, 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 a better comfort level there. Um, and so, you know, we're obviously fortunate to have uh, have uh, received kind of that end of, of that behavior. So taking advantage of a uh, market opportunity and putting something out there, uh, you know, you're you're calling it Islamic finance, you're calling it halal finance. Do you ever see a B2B2C play where you're going to be able to use that process uh, and those instruments and then perhaps take away that, that mantra or that name so that you think that it will access a much greater market than simply the Islamic market based on the fundamental principles and values, which one could argue uh, you know, are universal in certain aspects? Yeah, it's a great point and a great question. And I think, um, you know, we have had internal discussions about this. These products are designed for this community and by default available for everyone else, right? Right. And so I think what could end up happening is if we start to actually saturate this market here in Canada and there's a bigger play at large, then we probably might create a secondary brand or a sister brand, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, attract more of kind of that ethical community, that socially responsible community, and, and, and do it that way to remove kind of that religious element. But, I, but the underlying products wouldn't change, right? Yeah, yeah. So it, it, would, it would just be just to, you know, be able to speak that common language to attract those certain individuals that don't understand kind of the the nuances or the sensitivities um, of our of our current marketing. Yeah, and who basically, you know, again, are coming from a different point of reference than people from the Muslim community might be coming from. That wasn't a, a trap question, so to speak, but in, when we're analyzing businesses, uh, when entrepreneurs start going in all sorts of different directions, too soon sometimes. Uh, we've heard it many times, uh, you know, here on Market Hunts uh, and in some of the cases that we've analyzed on the IE Knowledge Hub, uh, where you're like, you know, 10 years or 15 years in advance of what the market kind of demands, even though you have the technology right there uh, and uh, then you start spreading your capital too thin you're trying to conquer global markets you're 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 not concentrating your capital uh, in one market and trying to be the dominant player in that market uh, and that really allows you once you're established there you know step-by-step -step process taking your time making sure that you're you know dotting all your I's and crossing your T's that once you have that hold on that market and you can become the dominant player then you'll look at expanding uh, you know, as opposed to trying to do everything parallel, because ambition is one thing, but actually execution is where the uh, you know uh, you, you, where you hit the pavement and you get things done and execute properly. So you have to be able to uh, align both your ambition with your execution to be able to uh, to get a project started, as opposed to being able to talk about it and then you know it evaporates because you're not able to do it. Oh, absolutely, couldn't agree more.
We've covered a lot of ideations in terms of how you started this, in terms of the global economic ecosystem, in terms of what the expectations of your target audiences are, in terms of how you're expanding to reach new audiences and focusing still on driving that consumer uh, adoption for your technology in terms of the strategic partnerships that you've had. What do you believe are some key variables that need to change in order for uh, Manzo to grow and to thrive? Great question. Um, like we're in an era right now where, you know, there, there's this whole movement, uh, you know, we, we've seen the Black Lives Matter movement, this whole movement on minority entrepreneurs. Uh, and, and I like to put ourselves kind of in that category because, you know, the, the, the VC space, the, the, the startup space is very much, you know, male, white dominated. Uh, and so, you know, not only am I at a disadvantage from this point of perspective, but I'm also at an a disadvantage because of the market that I'm attracting and the products that I'm providing. Right. And it's I don't I don't think it's it's done on purpose. I think there's just a, an, an awareness and an education gap. Right. Because, you know, I brought up, you know, the fact that this has been done in the UK. It's being done actually across the whole world. It hasn't been done here in Canada. And that's what I'm bringing to the table is I'm bringing something that's already being done, but just into a new market because it hasn't been localized. And so that's kind of our value proposition. And there's a captive market here, right? You know, you look at founder market fit, you look at product market fit, you look at, you know, having it, you're, you're in a niche demographic, but it, it, you know, for me, 1.6 million individuals in, in a captive market is, is a lot. And then if you look at globally, you, you know, you can expand to 1.8 billion Muslims. And then you probably add the SRI or the ethical people on top of that. Maybe you get 75% of the world, right? So, <laughs> um, so I, I think yeah. there just needs to be, uh, you know, that, that open-mindedness is, is the word I'm looking for when it comes to engaging with, uh, you know, guys like me or a startup like mine to be like, what are you actually doing? What do you, why are you doing this? And, and why is there this need? And why hasn't it been done before, right? Um, and I think, you, I think a constructive conversation can come from that, uh, probably an even enlightening one. Like I can't tell you how many times people were like, I didn't even know that this was an issue. I didn't even know that this was a problem, right? Um, and so, you know, that's what we're trying to do is just, you know, bring that awareness to the table and make it as mainstream as halal or kosher meat. Absolutely. And I, you know, I, I truly believe, again, there's a, I would love to know where every penny of my investments are at, you know, and even for people who are fortunate to have investments, where is the money going? How is it being driven? What's the transparency there? I think that that's an expectation that's only going to increase, uh, you know, with a new and upcoming generation that's uh, accessing wealth. That's a, a lot of companies, once they see an opportunity, if they're not able to do it themselves, they can always license that technology and have have another company run with it there. So tremendous potential for the future. Very exciting stuff. The IE Knowledge Hub is a hub for further study and education and transparency. And we're all about accessibility to it. What kinds of questions do you think students should be looking at in terms of the fintech space and specifically with regards to what you're doing? What kind of market research would you love to have or new kind of innovative pathways that you would like to pursue that you might not have time for? But if you put the question out there, you know, who knows who's going to be exploring that and getting back to you? Yeah, no, I think uh, I think that's a great question. And uh, I love uh, these kind of research based topics. I would love to see 
um, you know, especially in the fintech space, just like we're always interested in market research with respect to consumer behavior, like what makes them adopt versus not like what is what is that key uh, factor for people to be like, I want to do it with them, right? Versus these guys. I'm always of the of the thought that it's trust and credibility, but trust and credibility can be built one of two ways with a lot of marketing dollars um, or, a, you know, a, a major backer, like, which is probably another bank, you know, behind you um, or time, right? So I, I'm always interested, how do you speed that process up with a consumer, right? Um, what What is it that you need to say or show to instill that trust and confidence and to close that gap to make sure that they can jump over that hurdle and say, yes, I want to become a client of this firm. I'm sure in many other industries, from anything from taking a vaccine or not to adopting, you know, uh, new technologies to downloading an app for a pandemic, which the government is putting out to help track, trace and diagnose who's infected or not for a virus. That's a big question uh, that uh, lots of different industries are asking. So certainly if we can target it towards fintech adoption, that would be a solid question to put out there. So uh, if you do have any ideas out there for our audience, you can write to us at solutions at ie-knowledgehub.ca and we'll take those answers and we'll include them in our website. And thank you so much, Mohammed, for all your time today. It was a real pleasure speaking with you. Hopefully only one of a beginning of a conversation that we'll have and wishing you all success for the future. Thank you so much for having me and I really, really enjoyed this discussion. And now a final word from our sponsor, IE Knowledge Hub. IE Knowledge Hub is a website dedicated to promoting learning and exchanges on international entrepreneurship. If you are an education professional looking for course content, an academic researcher seeking research material, or someone interested in business innovation, check out IE Knowledge Hub. Let's pick up where we left off with Invest Ottawa, an economic development corporation fostering entrepreneurship in the Ottawa National Capital Region. To take a, a municipal view on things from an entrepreneurial perspective doesn't make any sense. So what we do is we work closely with all of Eastern Ontario and we'll work with New York and Boston and in Silicon Valley with some of the investors there. That's Kevin Carroll from Invest Ottawa. Invest Ottawa not only helps entrepreneurs, but they also work to attract foreign direct investment to the region. To do this, they need to go beyond the municipal focus and branch out to the entrepreneurial networks abroad. We work closely with federal government because they've got people who are feet on the ground working directly with industry that can help make those connections. And then the last piece is, is really around personal connections because there's a lot of Canadians, I'll use the example of the C100 in, uh, in California, ex-venture people or they're working for Google or high up in Microsoft and things like that, but they're ex-Canadians living in California. In addition to finding financing from outside of Canada, many Ottawa-based companies sell products and services internationally. Bruce Lazenby, Invest Ottawa's former CEO, explains. Virtually all of the companies that we deal with understand that their first sale may come from Ottawa or from Canada, but that's not where they're going to make their money. Canada could be a good place to start, but being born global means that you always have ideas of selling to the rest of the world. You've been listening to segments of the Invest Ottawa video case study. To learn more about how to foster an entrepreneurial ecosystem, watch their full case available for free at ie-knowledgehub.ca. 
Market Hunt is produced by Cartouche Media in collaboration with Serotone Studios in Montreal and Pop-Up Podcasting in Ottawa. Market Hunt is part of the IE Knowledge Hub Network. Funding for this program comes from the Social Sciences and Humanities Resource Council of Canada. Executive producers, Hamid Etamat, McGill University, Des Hotel Faculty of Management, and Hamid Motagi, Université de Québec en Outaouais. Associate producer, Jose Orlando Montes, Université du Québec à Montréal. Technical producers, Simon Petraki, Serotone Studio, and Lisa Carrito, Pop-Up Podcasting. Show consultant, J.P. Davidson. Artwork by Melissa Jandro. Voiceover, Katie Harrington. You can check out the IE Knowledge Hub case study at ie-knowledgehub.ca. For Market Hunt, I'm Thierry Harris. Thanks for listening.